Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the Summit. Glad you could be with us as we are kicking back off our series uh, in the Gospel according to Mark. This is really great. I know some of you are new and you're kind of like, am I jumping in the middle of this? This is a great uh, week for you to be here because this story, um, I feel like captures really the kind of the the wholeness of who Jesus is as well as any other story we've looked at so far. Um, Basically what you're going to see is a group of people that had heard a little bit of something about Jesus actually come and see Jesus for themselves and and really are pretty amazed as a consequence. And uh, I was thinking about it this week. I feel like for me, um, when I go from like hearing about something to actually going and seeing it for myself, um, the result is usually I'm considerably let down. Usually like what I actually see for myself doesn't in any way kind of live up to uh, what I had heard, and uh, maybe maybe just to give you a couple examples of this, um, I made a terrible mistake last week. If you were here, you remember me boasting in the quality of our soccer team. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but I mentioned that me and some of the other pastors and some of our few other members um, play for the soccer team, and I just went off about like how great we are and how we kill everybody and how we're smoking opponents. And um, you know what they say: pride comes before the fall. Uh, this past Wednesday, we got smoked, and it was terrible, and uh, the worst part about it was, I guess some people hearing that we play actually came out to watch us play, and uh, I, I'm just like, like, my parting words with them, like, sorry, we're such a huge disappointment, like, we, <laughs> we lost five to nothing, um, it, was, it was terrible, and I'm just thinking for them, it's like, you know, they hear one thing on a Sunday, then they go see it for themselves on a Wednesday, and there's like, there was a considerable letdown. We went from hearing about something to actually seeing it for ourselves. That was my experience with this this past week. Uh, I feel like maybe another example, um, I was thinking about this with online dating. It's amazing, like with online dating. I know a number of you do online dating, which there's nothing like intrinsically wrong or evil with online dating. And it's like a huge industry. It's like a $2 billion industry and there's so many varieties and so many options and there's apps and there's websites and there's you know online dating for farmers and there's online dating for jewish people and there's online dating for people different races and ethnicities uh but here's what's really interesting i was reading an article about online dating it was saying kind of the common denominator that ties all of online dating platforms together is the vast majority of people who do online dating lie like that's the that's the thing that ties them all together uh, because the vast majority of people when they're kind of filling out a profile and projecting this image of themselves they're projecting not so much who they are as much as is who they wish they were. And, you know, I really like the idea of being tall and athletic and working in the entertainment industry and, you know, I don't know. Like, I like the idea of reading. And I like the idea of being well-traveled. And, and many of you, you have seen firsthand the difference between hearing about something and then being considerably let down when you actually go see for yourselves. And we could kind of pass around the mic for the next 30 minutes. It would probably be much more entertaining than anything I have to say. Uh, where you have shown up to a date and you're like, oh, you're not actually tall. You like the idea of being tall. Um, you're not actually single. You just like the idea of being <laughs> single. A lot of times that happens. You, 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 you you like the idea of working this particular job, but you don't actually work that particular job. And you see, and that's typically the way it goes with advertisements and with, with everything. It's like, it, kind of once we've seen things, it's way better, or it's way worse than kind of what we initially heard. Now, here's why I say all of this, is what you're going to see in this scene is a group of people who have heard a little bit about Jesus. It's pretty good stuff from what we can tell. And they come to see Jesus for themselves. But here's what's really interesting. He has the exact opposite effect. It's really powerful because what you see is a group of people who've heard something about Jesus come and see Jesus for themselves, and it's not that their expectations are too high, they're actually too low. 
It's not so much that they need to shrink their vision of who this man who claims to be God is. Really, they need to expand their vision of what he can do in their lives. And I would challenge you to think about this in your own life because I think there's this larger cultural narrative as it, as it applies to the way you think about who God is where it's almost like um, kind of assumed that for you to kind of grow up in terms of the way you understand the world, the way you understand God's relationship to the world, is your step in that journey is a step towards cynicism and skepticism and doubt and lowering expectations. And yeah, when you were a kid, you believed there was this God who cared about you and wanted to meet your needs, and you could pray to him, and he would actually be involved in your life. But now it's time to grow up and put your big boy pants on and believe the world is a cold, hard, dark place. You have enough experiences with this to know that's not really the way that it goes. And so what's proclaimed is that if you're going to have a really healthy understanding of God, you need to sort of shrink your expectations as opposed to raise them. What you're going to see in the scene is the exact opposite is true. Like, have you ever thought, for you, your biggest misunderstanding, your biggest problem, as it comes with understanding God's work in your life, is not that your expectations are too large, they're actually too small. Have you thought that when it comes to understanding God's work in your life, it's not that your desires... Are too, are too strong. They're actually far too weak. Your expectations are too low. And what you see in this scene is a group of people who go from hearing about Jesus to seeing Jesus, and all their categories are blown up and their expectations are raised because God in the flesh can do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. And so that's what we're going to see kind of unfold in this scene. We're going to see this scene really unfold almost the way like a, a play or a movie would unfold. It, it unfolds in various acts, and we see three acts, the first of which is this, as we see what we'll call the request. We'll see what we call the request. And look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, when he, he being Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now, some of you are jumping in with us. Let's bring up our map. Our map. Yes, okay. Uh, so this is the big picture visual, uh, visual of where everything is going down in the world. Uh, so there you go. That's where Capernaum is, where we just heard about. And then let's zoom in. There it is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. What we saw in chapter 1 is Jesus does much of his ministry in Capernaum, but he also felt the need to spread his message of the gospel to the surrounding communities and towns around the Sea of Galilee. So that's why I've come out. But we see that in chapter 2, some period of time has passed uh, after the end of chapter 1, which has led to him returning back to Capernaum. The consequence is everybody's heard about Jesus. Uh, here's he's back in town. He, he's in this home. We think it's the home of Peter. And, and they crowd into the home to hear, and not just to hear, but to really see him for themselves. That's what you see in verse 2. It says, And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So it's a pretty interesting scene. And all of a sudden, on the scene comes an unwelcomed intrusion. Look at verse 3. It says, and they came. Who's they? They were the ones bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And then we could not get near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. This, this is such a phenomenally vivid scene. I mean, just imagine this in your head. Jesus is teaching Everybody has kind of flocked to the house that he's teaching in. It's so crowded that it's almost like when these friends carrying their paralyzed buddy on a bed show up. It's almost like they show up to a concert like after it's sold out. And they're like, okay, go home. Like, no, we're not going home. We're going up on the roof. What history tells us is that homes around that time, they would have steps along the side that would let you uh, kind of walk up onto the roof uh, that functioned much like a deck to kind of cool in an incredibly humid and hot 
uh, climb it. And so they go up on the roof, but they go up on the roof not just to kind of like view the crowd. It says that they remove the roof above Jesus. In the Greek, if you translate this literally, it actually says they unroofed the roof. Um, which I feel like is such like a great wordplay because it's not like some, I don't know, it's not like they were just kind of like peek in. They are removing the roof, major construction project for the sake of being able to lower their friend in. So try to picture the visual of what's going on here. Try to think of yourself as if you were an eyewitness sitting right by Jesus as he's teaching. Jesus is teaching the most, you know, uh, the most astounding truths about who God is and you're watching him and all of a sudden you feel something on your head. You look up, there's dirt coming down from the ceiling and then there's like a giant hole up in the ceiling and all of a sudden like down lowers this paralyzed guy on a bed like it's Cirque du Soleil and he's like, what's up everybody? What's up Jesus? Like you feel like you could heal my legs? And you're kind of like, what in the world is Jesus going to do with this? It's unbelievably kind of like offensive and humorous at the same time. Now, we're gonna see what Jesus does with this in the next part. Um, before we get there, I, I just wanted to kind of tell you two ways that I feel like um, this opening kind of act of this play almost um, really is challenging to me. I think it should be challenging to you as well, really from the examples of the people that we've encountered so far. Like the first example that's really challenging to me is the extent to which these friends will go to get their friend to Jesus in the midst of his greatest need. Like, what you see is a glimpse into some guys that model for us what authentic friendship looks like. I mean, we exist in this culture where everybody's so kind of self-autonomous that, you know, you've got your problems and i got my problems, and like, good luck, I hope it goes well for you. And, and maybe even the extent of what it means to be a good friend is to say, like, okay, I'm going to empathize with you and help you. But these friends, they model what true and authentic friendship looks like because they're not just willing to kind of carry this own man's burdens as their own. I mean, not just figuratively, but literally carry this man's burdens uh, as their own. But they're also eager to take this man's burdens to Jesus where they can actually be healed. And I would challenge you to think about in your own life, as you think about the people who are friends, like one, like do you see those people's burdens as your responsibility as something to carry alongside them? And, and if you do, I mean, I think all of us would say, yeah, 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 like I have that responsibility. I, I guess the follow-up question I would ask you is, like where are you going to take those burdens? And like are you going to meet those burdens with sort of like common sense and pop culture wisdom and you know, it's okay, it's going to be better, we won't let anything happen? Or are you like actually going to take those problems to Jesus who, who can heal. And I'll tell you, like, for me, it's like, a lot of times, I like to not see people's problems as my own. Like, I've got enough of my own problems. I, I like not to have awkward conversations where it's like, well, have you thought about, like, the way Jesus can work and move in this? Instead, to be like, man, well, good luck. <laughs> like, I'll pray. Like, whatever that means. Like, but, like, for me, I'm deeply challenged by these men's example to say, like, they're like, no, like, this man, our friend's responsibility is our responsibility his burden is our burden, and we're going to do something with that burden. We're going to take it to Jesus. Now, not only that, here's what also is challenging to me. I'm challenged by how much Jesus will stretch himself to help and meet a marginalized man. I, I'm, I'm really challenged by the extent to which Jesus does not see this man who interrupts and ruins everything that he's trying to accomplish as nothing other than sort of a burden and an intrusion on what it is he's trying to get done. I mean, think about this. Like, Jesus is, is doing public speaking, right? Like, for, for most of us in this room, like, the one thing you're afraid of more than anything else is the thought of public speaking. It's super intense. It's super emotional. I get nervous. Like, I'm even nervous right now talking about getting nervous about public speaking. And for any of you, you know, like, who go downtown and watch, um, 
you know, if you see somebody do stand-up comedy, if you see somebody do, like, a show, not, not like a show at Red Rocks, but like a show in downtown, like an opera or something like that, like, the reality is, is there's 10,000 announcements on the front end, right? Like, turn off your cell phones, no flash photography, don't interrupt, don't talk, don't move around, don't go to the bathroom, because it's like public speaking is so hard to, ha- like, kind of deal with those sort of intrusions on what you're trying to say. You lose concentration, and it's terrible, and everybody's disappointed. And, and hold that all in your mind. When here's Jesus publicly speaking, and all of a sudden, a dude literally crashes in through the roof. Like, if that's me, I'm like, get this guy out of here. Like, I'm trying to teach about grace and truth. Like, get this guy out of here, okay? Like, he's, I'm, he's messing me up. I'm trying to do good. I'm trying to be able to think I'm, like, really funny and charismatic. Get this guy out of here. And Jesus, on the opposite, does, I mean, he does the exact opposite of what I would do. He's like, no, like, this is the very person I came to do my work with him. And I would just challenge you from the example of Jesus to say, like, do you not just like the idea of helping marginalized people like you see in this scene, but, like, are you willing to sort of take on the mess onto yourselves? Are, are you willing to fully incarnate into the struggle and the pain and the messiness and the inefficiency that comes with helping somebody who is marginalized within culture? Because that was the only way that Jesus is going to impact this guy. And I'll tell you, we exist in a culture, we exist as a generation that likes the idea of helping marginalized people, and we'll complain about it in coffee shops, and we'll post about it on social media, but then when it comes time to actually help somebody, it's like, whoa, 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 just wanted to wear the t-shirt. It's like, I don't want to be, like, have my schedule thrown out, I don't want to feel unsafe, I don't want to be hard, I want to, like, mess with my plans, and I'll tell you, it's like, if you are going to help somebody who's marginalized in culture, like, if you're going to help the orphan, like, it is going to severely wreck the ease and the comfort and the security of your life. Like, if you're going to actually get to know your neighbors, and not just the neighbors who are exactly like you, but I'm talking about the neighbors that everybody else overlooks because they're difficult, or maybe they don't speak your language, you're like, well, yeah, it like makes me feel really uncomfortable to be around a bunch of people who don't speak English and they speak Spanish exclusively, like my next door neighbor. And, you know, when they're talking and they're pointing at me, like, are they saying good things? Are they saying bad things? I can't exactly, I don't exactly know what's being said. Anybody can complain in a coffee shop about people not helping the homeless enough. It's like, I'm telling you, like, if you actually develop relationships with homeless people, they actually become friends. You actually, like, know them as you go around town. Like, it's going to be hard. You actually invite them into your house. Like, you actually share a meal. You actually, like, take on their burdens and their struggles as your own. And I would challenge you to see, like, are you willing, not just to talk about helping the marginalized, are you willing to, like, take on the mess of fully incarnating into the lives of the marginalized? And it will be costly, and it will be hard, and it will be inefficient, and it will interrupt safety and security and financial planning. It will, it will wreck all that stuff. But it's for the glory of God, and it's the way of Jesus. I'll tell you, it's deeply challenging for me to see Jesus do this. Where it's like, for me, I'm like, get this guy out. He's getting in the way of the life I always wanted. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to fully incarnate into this man's pain and take his messiness onto myself. Okay, so... See the request? We got 
Barnum and Bailey going on in this house. Dude ro- lowered in on the trapeze. How is Jesus going to respond? He responds, and in typical Jesus fashion, it's not very simple, it's not very easy. He actually almost raises more problems than you thought existed in the first place. And see this, everybody in the room is in some way offended, in some way thrown off by what Jesus says. And I love this. For the paralytic, here, look at this. He gives a tremendous problem for the paralytic. Look at verse 5. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, what's the problem with that? It's not what he asked for, right? Like, think about this. Like, these guys have gone to all this effort to get to Jesus so that their friend's legs will be healed. And they finally get him to Jesus, major construction project and all. Jesus sees him and says, son, you can walk. No, he doesn't say that. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. This would be so disappointing. Like, what? <laughs> I was thinking about this, like, when I was in uh, middle school, and my brother was in elementary school, um, my brother really wanted this video game. I'm not sure if any of you remember this, but it was a video game called (laughs) Banjo-Kazooie. Yeah, we have some big fans here. Okay. Um, That's the most excited I've ever heard you guys before. So, (laughs) yes, Banjo-Kazooie. Hearing amens all over the place. So, uh, Banjo-Kazooie, and my brother, he would, like, draw pictures about Banjo-Kazooie, and he would, like, march around the house, like, I want Banjo-Kazooie. I want Banjo-Kazooie. I remember he would, like, leave voicemails for my mom at work, like, talking about, like, I want Banjo-Kazooie. And my grandparents, who would watch us when our parents worked, um, overheard this. um, But when they overheard it, they thought that my brother was asking for a banjo and a kazoo. Um, Almost like he was trying to start this, like, fourth grade, bluegrass, (laughs) one-man band. Now, fortunately, before my sweet grandmother could buy a banjo and a kazoo for Eric... Um, somebody, I think my parents kind of put it all together and said, no, 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 that's not what he wants. He wants, actually wants a video game. I feel like one of my greatest disappointments in my childhood is not having to get to the point where, like, Eric actually opened up a present that had, like, a banjo and a kazoo and, like, somehow them having to, like, figure out, like, what is the disconnect here? Um, but I feel like that's almost like what's going on in this scene. It's like, Jesus, did you, like, misunderstand why I'm here? Did you misunderstand what it is that I'm asking for? Did you misunderstand, like, that I can't walk it's almost like, like, is Jesus, is he playing, like, some sort of, like, really cruel joke on this guy? What we see is actually the exact opposite, that we're getting a glimpse into how Jesus is actually far better than we could have ever realized. Like, what we see in a scene like this one is Jesus is actually more committed to this man's joy than even this man is committed to his own, his own joy. What you see is, like, Jesus actually loves this paralyzed guy more than this paralyzed guy loves this paralyzed guy. And Tim Keller, he, he puts it this way. If you're reading the book alongside us that we have uh, out in the lobby, um, you may have seen this. He, he says, Jesus is confronting the paralytic with his main problem by driving him deep. Jesus is saying, by coming to me and asking for only your body to be healed, you're not going deep enough. You have underestimated the depths of your longings, the longings of your heart. What you see in a scene like this one is something tremendously beautiful because, I mean, you know, we all talk about, like, I have to look out for number one and nobody loves me the way that I love me, and you're wrong if you think that. Like, God actually loves you more than you love you. God is actually more after your joy than even you're after your joy. Like, when you see in a scene like this one, it's a lot of time I don't even know what I want. But God, in his kindness and his patience and his mercy and his grace, is actually fighting to give us what what we actually need. 
And I'll tell you, this can be tremendously revolutionary as you maybe think about, like this, own, like this paralyzed guy in this scene, like as you think about maybe your biggest problems and like God's relationship to those biggest problems, if you're anything like me, I tend to think like, okay, the way this works is I have problems and God, you fix them. And if you don't fix them, as soon as I ask, maybe we'll give you like three days, okay? But like, if you don't fix them by then, it's like, what are you even doing up there? Like, why am I even talking to you? Why am I even wasting my breath? And a lot of you feel this way, right? Like, like the one thing you want above anything else is like, I want to be married, and you're not married. And it's like, God, what are you doing up there? Or you feel this maybe with like your job. Like, the one thing you want is a job that kind of fulfills you and makes you feel like you're changing the world and feel like you have purpose. And like, that is not your reality, nine to five. It's like the exact opposite. And you're like, God, like, Give me favor when my resume is in a stack of like a thousand other resumes for like the five cool jobs that exist out there. You feel this with your money? It's like, if I could just get a little bit more money, like God, if you would just have me make a few more dollars an hour, if I could just get a raise, if I could just win the lottery, if I could just have like a relative die who has a lot of money, like hopefully a relative that like I don't care much about, but like they care about me and they give me their money. Like if that could happen, like I wouldn't feel so anxious and worried when I pay the bills every single month. And like God doesn't deliver and he hasn't delivered and he hasn't like a genie kind of snapped his fingers and all of a sudden you're married to the perfect person and working the perfect job and making the perfect amount of money to have no concerns or worries whatsoever. And it's easy in that scenario to feel like, like do you even care? Have you abandoned me? Like, are you really good? Are you really in control? Are you really powerful? The scene like this one actually flips that question on its head to say, like, not are you there, are you good, but, like, how are you being good? Like, are you, not just are you, but how are you laboring for what I need in the midst of not giving me what I want? And could it be, like, if you're a single girl who desperately wants to be married above anything else, the greatest gift God could give you is to know that, like, you will not be fulfilled and life's greatest aim should not, you, should not be you desiring to be married more than anything else. And that your value as a woman does not have to be found in a man you share a bed with. That if you actually did meet somebody who meets your current expectations of, like, I'm going to meet this guy and he's going to make my wildest dreams come true... Like, I'm just going to let you know a secret. Like, God is protecting you from entering into a marriage with a false expectation that is going to be crumbled. It is going to absolutely, absolutely fall apart. And you will crucify that man with your criticism and your disappointment because he will fail to be the savior you have craved for him to be. Like, could it be the greatest gift God could give you? I'm not saying this to everybody who's single. I'm not trying to say this blanket for everybody. I mean, I think some people are just called to be single for the rest of their lives. And there's, like, and even in that, like, God is laboring for He's not like, sorry, you missed out. Like, there wasn't enough people to match it up. And, like, my online dating service doesn't work. Like, no, like, even for you, like, there's a greater and a deeper joy in that to be, like, your value, even though this might be countercultural to what everybody else says, is not found in your relationship status. But you've already been bestowed the riches of the gospel through him. And like, so you're a whole person. Even if you're not married. Even if you don't have kids. Or it might mean, like, with a job, like, 
maybe what God is teaching you more than like you having the job that makes all your wildest dreams come true is that ultimately a job is a job and there's nothing out there that you're going to do nine to five that is going to satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. If it does, just give it some time. Like give it a week. And all of a sudden, like the glamour and the polish, and oh, I get to travel, oh, this sort of, like it wears off and a finite thing doesn't fill the infinite void within our hearts. It's going to be that like when you don't get all the money that you think will make like all your worries go away, like God is actually giving you the greater gift to know that your security is not rooted in your circumstances, but rather in him who provides for you daily because he loves you as a good dad does. Could it be that there's actually a greater reward in believing and finding that and running to him in the midst of your need rather than having no need whatsoever? And it might even be like, you're working through something right now that's really, really hard, and it's not that simple, right? You can't exactly kind of connect the dots and be like, well, this is happening, so I can do that. It's like, but it might mean just carrying in the assurance of what you see in this scene to say, like, Jesus is the man who is also God who reveals to us that he loves you more than you love you. And I would challenge you to apply that to, like, what you're struggling through right now, and that he hasn't abandoned you, but he's actually doing the very thing that he's promised to do. So this guy's just puzzled. Not only that, everybody else is puzzled as well. You see this for the other eyewitnesses who are in the room. Look at this in verse 6 through 7. Now some of the scribes, uh, if you remember, these were some of the established religious leaders of the day. They were sitting there, and they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, a lot of times, like the scribes and the Pharisees, they get kind of a tough rap, and it's like, well, why are they being so critical? They're actually asking, like, a really good question. Because think about how bizarre it would be to see somebody randomly forgive the sins of a stranger. Like, think about this in your life. Like, think about a time where you've been deeply, deeply wronged by somebody else. And let me just throw out a hypothetical there. Let's say, for example, um, you have all, you're, you're a car person, and you've always, since you were a kid, dreamt of owning a particular type of car. And you've saved for months, you've saved for years, you've sacrificed, you've said no to things, you haven't eaten out as much. It's like you can finally buy it, and you do buy it. And you drive it off a lot, and that thing is awesome, and it's beautiful, and you can't wait to show it to your wife or to your kids or to your friends. Like, you feel like life could not be better than this. And as you're thinking this, bam, somebody sideswipes you because they ran through a stop sign in downtown because they weren't paying attention because they were looking at their phone. And they weren't even doing anything important on their phone. They were like Facebooking on their phone. They weren't like texting somebody like, I'll be there in three minutes, sorry I'm late. Like, no, they were just like scrolling through their news feed, totally pointless, doesn't contribute anything whatsoever. And you're like, oh my gosh. Get out of the car. You go to kind of talk to this person. You assess the damage. You're like, oh, my gosh, my car is totaled. My dreams are ruined. And you're about to go talk to this guy, and all of a sudden, a random stranger walks on the scene and says to the person who hit you, my son, your sins are forgiven. You are not like, that is so nice, <laughs> right? <laughs> you're not like, oh, that's like, that was what I was going to say. Man, you beat me to the punch. I'd be like, you weren't even there, and you didn't even see what happened. I mean, your car's fine. Like, it didn't happen to you. Like, that's the logic that these, 
that these scribes are using there. They're saying, like, wait a second, Jesus, you're forgiving the sins of a random stranger? Like, you weren't there to see the wrongs he committed. You were the one who was ultimately wronged. And Jesus is kind of subtly saying, oh, on the contrary, I'm God, and I was there, and I was the one who was ultimately wronged. And he's ultimately like, whoa, <laughs> is this guy saying what I think he's saying? Yeah, like he is saying what, he thinks he's, what I think he's saying. Like he's claiming to be God. Now we'll see how he like does this even more so in the next scene. But here's, here's just kind of one kind of side note I want to make, and then we'll kind of see how the scene closes is that it's interesting that this charge of blasphemy that is brought towards Jesus, the claim to be God, is ultimately what leads to Jesus dying. Like, this charge is ultimately the one that leads him being convicted and dying on the cross. And what Mark does consistently is he foreshadows, he anticipates the fullness of the gospel and showing us that in order for Jesus to give this man new life, he is taking a conscious and voluntarily, voluntary step towards death. Like there is this anticipation of the coming of the gospel that for Jesus to breathe life into this man, he is taking a conscious step towards being put to death on a cross. He'll ultimately die for these charges. And it anticipates the greater work of the gospel that Jesus Christ will die, not just a little death, but a literal death on a cross for our sins so that we might receive new life. And Mark's already like, it's coming. Like Jesus doesn't get tricked into it. He's not like, Oh, I had no idea this was going to happen. He's like, I know this is how it ends from the very beginning. And I'm taking voluntary steps towards that being my demise for your good. Now, look at this. Look at what happens next. I love what happens next. We see Jesus respond. So that's like kind of the third and final way that Jesus responds. And it's really funny to me because like, what's the charge, right? Like, who's this guy think he is? He thinks he's God, Uh, which is funny to me because like, um, I don't know. I feel like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not, but in culture, there's a lot of people who kind of look at Jesus as nothing other than kind of this meek, mild teacher of morals or failed political revolutionary. I remember for me, like, I became a Christian when I was in college. I was minoring in religious studies at a large secular university. All my professors are teaching me, like, oh, Jesus didn't actually claim to be God. He never claimed to be God. Like, it was just a big misunderstanding. Like, in the third century, they kind of projected these expectations back on Jesus, and he was kind of swept up in it, and he was like, oh, I don't know, you know, I don't think I'm God. I think I'm just trying to teach people how to love people more. Now, hold that in your mind. If you ever heard that argument, hold that in your mind, because that's what these people are saying to him. Wait, does this guy think he's God? And look at the way that Jesus flexes his muscles and drops the mic to say, absolutely, like you bet your bottom dollar I'm God. Look at this. Verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which already, like, think about this. So like these guys are silent. They're not saying it. They're silently asking in their hearts, like, who's this guy think he is? Is he God? But it's like not even verbal. And Jesus is like, why are you saying in your heart, does this guy think he's God? Already I'd be like, whoa, Okay, you win. Okay, we're done here. Jesus is reading minds and reading hearts. It's like, okay, we're sorry we doubted you. But in case there's any doubt, he goes on, verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Think about that for yourself. Which is easier? To forgive a man of his sins? Or to heal him of a life, a fully debilitating uh, physical condition. 
The answer is like, they're both impossible, right? It's kind of like a riddle almost. It's like, which is easier to do? To forgive the sins of another, which only God can do, or to heal a man miraculously, which only God can do? And Jesus is like, let me tell you something. I can actually do both. In case there's any doubt, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And I love this, because what Jesus is doing is he's not leaving it up to debate. I mean, anybody can go in and claim to be the Son of God, and, you know, like, if I was like, oh, yeah, your sins are forgiven, like, you don't have any sort of objective way of measuring, like, did that happen or not? Jesus is like, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal your outward physical condition so everybody can know and intellectually verify that I am qualified to heal your inward spiritual condition. And I will heal your physical ailment so I can prove that I can heal your inward spiritual ailment. And in case there's any doubt whatsoever, I will show you that I am the God who has come to heal and is capable of healing both. And look at the way the people respond. Verse 12, And he, the paralytic, rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. You're right, you didn't see anything like this. Because Jesus Christ is no failed political revolutionary like you had seen over and over again throughout history. You're right, you never seen anything like this because Jesus is just some good moral teacher showing you how to be nicer to people. You haven't seen anything like this because this is God in the flesh walking amongst you. And Jesus is like, I'm God. And I alone am the one who can heal not just physically, but spiritually. And look to me as your Savior. I love the way that Jesus, like, he totally shows off here. I mean, a lot of times, again, like, we're kind of uncomfortable with this picture of Jesus who would almost boast and kind of, like, draw attention to himself. It's like, oh, no, he's, like, meek and mild and quiet in the corner. And, you know, like, oh, yeah, like, if you guys need anything, like, just ask me and I'll, I'll help you. And, yeah, it's like... Jesus doesn't do this in the scene whatsoever. He's like, you better bet that I'm God. You better bet that I can save you physically and spiritually. You better bet that I am your exclusive hope to bring about in your life what you have craved to have happen in your life. You better bet that I'm the one. And he is drawing attention to himself, and he is boasting, and he's saying, look to me. And for some of you, that's probably a little bit off-putting because it's like, well, wait a second. Like, that's not very humble of him. And I would say to you, like, humility is not pretending like you're good at, like, not good at anything. Like, if somebody here, like, went down with a heart attack and there was one of you in this room who could heal that person because you had the medical qualifications to do so, the most loving thing, the most humble thing is not to stand in the corner and be like, well, you know, I'm not really going to say anything unless anybody asks me. And, you know, like, I probably should get out of here and maybe I'll find somebody else and maybe somebody else will step in. No, it's like, look to me. Like, look to me. Look to me. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He's the only man in the room, not just like in that room, but on the face of the earth who can bring about the healing that we clamor for. And he is boasting, declaring that I am God. And you'll put me to death for it, but it's okay. I'm God. And I can conquer the grave, and I'll resurrect three days later. It's all according to the plan, and I've got control of the whole thing. All these people are astounded. And we should be as well. Now, the scene comes to a close. Here, here's what I want to do as we kind of move towards responding and thinking about this. I, I want to ask you, maybe just challenge you to ask yourself, really, four questions um, that really rise from this text so you can really just do the hard work of applying this to your, 
yourself uh, maybe this week, okay? So let, let me just ask you some questions for you to ask yourself, and, and then we'll be done. Uh, one, I, I would just ask you the question, like, who do you need to bring to Jesus? Like, who is somebody in your life that you see as a friend who is carrying a burden, who is carrying a weight, and you really not only need to take that weight or burden onto yourself, but like you need to have the courage, and not just the courage, but the love to bring that burden to the person who can actually bring healing, Jesus Christ. That's the hard part, right? Like anybody can be empathetic. What's really hard is actually being empathetic in the right way and in the right direction and taking burdens to the man who can heal Jesus. So I'd say, like, who is that in your life? Like, we all know broken people. And who, like, is God calling you to say, like, I want to do for this friend, like, what these guys are willing to do for their paralyzed friend? Second question. I would say, what messiness do you voluntarily need to take on for the sake of the marginalized? Like, where in our city, where in our world do you need to say, like, I'm not just going to like the idea of helping the orphan or the refugee or the homeless or the sick. I'm like, I'm going to understand and voluntarily incarnate into the inefficiency that comes with bringing healing in a person like that's life. Like, I'm telling you, like, if your chief priorities in life are making as much money as possible and having as much safety as possible and having all your dreams come true and having your family get to experience all the things that you thought they should experience. Like, if that is what you're after, which basically is the American dream, like, you're not going to be able to do this. Like, you can't just toss a few dollars and not be interrupted of your life plans to really change the life of somebody who's marginalized. But the way of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us is he has entered into the lives of marginalized people like me and he transforms my thinking to see other people not as burdens or intrusions but rather the mission. So what does that look like in your life? Three, where do you just need to see that Jesus in your life might be giving you what you need as opposed to what you want. Like, think about that. Maybe in a particular area of your life where you just need to start changing your thinking to be like, why are you not giving me what I want? Why are you not giving me what I want? Why are you not giving me what you want? And instead to start thinking like, what is it that I ultimately need? Like, where is my final joy found? And what is he doing in my life that reveals that he loves me like more than I even love myself? And the fourth question I would ask ask you is like, where do you need to expand your vision of who God is and what he can do in your life? Like, where do you, like these people, need to go from just hearing a little bit about Jesus to actually seeing him for yourself and seeing that your expectations are actually far too small? That's your vision of what he can do, your delight in his potential in your life is not too strong, it is actually too weak. And what would it look like for you to really start living with that confidence and applying it to an area of your life that you've always believed is hopeless or it's always going to be that way or that person is always going to do that? Let's do this. Let's pray. Uh, I would challenge you to really like, think about, like maybe there's one of those questions that really, I don't know, you, you just really need to deal with. And as we deal with that, um, we'll pray. We'll give you, tell you how to respond. We'll give you some other opportunities to respond as well. But let's pray. And uh, we'll respond. God, we thank you so much for you stepping out of heaven into history, 
to impact not the people who have their entire lives together, or at least under the delusion they have their entire lives together, not the people that were most powerful or most influential. You step down to influence a marginalized social outcast like a paralyzed guy. And I pray for us that we would first see our responsibility um, as we read this text is not so much what we should do as much as what we should receive, that we are that person in this story, that we are the beggar in need of grace, we are the one who is helpless, coming to you with a need. And a lot of times even the needs we bring to you are not our, our final and deepest needs. But you love us so much that you seek us out and you heal us of problems we didn't even know that we had. And God, that not only saves us, but it changes us to be men and women who live lives of intentionality, who desire to do that for others. And I pray we would do that. Like, I really pray that we would be men and women that would live in the wake of the greatness of who you are like we see in a scene like this one. And that really would practically impact our deepest problems, what we believe are our most fundamental needs. It would really change like the way we live tomorrow. I pray for that, and I pray that we would respond rightly in this time. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.